On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. David Rathel about John Gill and his thoughts on Catholicity and the covenant of redemption. So we cover topics like what did Gill think about Catholicity and how did we how did he endeavor to promote it? How can Baptists be strong in their distinctives yet remain Catholic as well? What did Gill think about the covenant of redemption and how did this interact with his doctrine of the Trinity? And might he receive pushback from contemporary Baptists who seem to be questioning the legitimacy of the covenant of redemption? And much, much more. And as a note, there were about 45 seconds to a minute that we lost audio for this episode. Really unfortunate. You might notice it. You might not. But I did want to note it. So if nothing else, maybe that'll tell you, check out Dr. Rathel's work because it's all available there. Anyway, as always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's devoted to thinking. Uh, particularly on uh, among our Baptist friends. I mean, when we started the podcast, I think one of the impetuses was, hey, Baptists have either A, a tough time thinking, or they really want to think, but they don't have the resources or the opportunities to think well. So we've tried to create uh, an avenue for that. And one of the things that we've wanted to do is create an intellectual culture that's full of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism, hopefully encouraging thinking, but in a mode that is kind and generous and curious. To that end, we have a really cool guest today to talk about a topic that I think at least me and Brandon love, and that's John Gill. We're going to discuss him and some of his thoughts, and we're going to talk to Dr. David Rathel, who man, I forget every time the name of the seminary. It, it's Gateway now, I think. I always think of it as Golden Gate, and I probably will never forget that. And uh, I apologize if I say that at some point in the interview, but I think he's at Gateway. And I'm looking forward to talking just about Gill and particularly about Gill's thoughts on Catholicity and the covenant of redemption. I think these are two really important uh, topics and ones that he's making contributions to. Uh, Dr. Rattle, he's got two articles on these. So if, if you're a nerd and want to go read it, nerd out and read more, he's got one. One of them is Journal of Reformed Theology, John Gill and the History of Redemption as Mere Shadow. And then the other one is in Baptist Quarterly, a case study in Baptist Catholicity, the scriptures and the tradition and the theology of John Gill. So before we get into those and get stuck into them, as my British British friends might say, Dr. Rattle, give us a little bit of background about maybe who you are and what got you interested in thinking about John Gill and topics related to him. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I've been looking forward to the conversation. Uh, just by way of brief uh, bio of my life, I am originally from Florida, and I attended undergrad at a school called the Baptist College of Florida. It's an SBC-affiliated college there above Panama City Beach. And then I went to your stomping grounds, which was Southeastern Seminary. And I did an MDiv and THM at Southeastern. And most important to me, I met my wife there in 2008. After I left Southeastern, I pastored a church in Virginia for six years. And while pastoring, I was starting work on a PhD at Southeastern. And I got about halfway through the PhD program at Southeastern, and the Lord opened the door for me to go study in the UK. And so our family moved to Scotland in 2014, 
so that I could pursue a PhD at the University of St. Andrews. And we lived there for several years. I studied under Steve Holmes. He was my doctoral supervisor. And then in 2018, we left the UK wondering what was next. And I've now come, as you said, to Gateway Seminary. Uh, Gateway was Golden Gate. You're absolutely right. It was located in the San Francisco area. And we still have one small campus in that area. But our institution moved just a few years ago down to the eastern part of Los Angeles. And so I'm here in eastern side of L.A. now. And uh, we, of course, when we moved, changed the name from Golden Gate, since we're no longer near the Golden Gate Bridge, to Gateway. I chose uh, Gateway for a few reasons. I enjoyed being out of the cultural Christianity associated with the South whenever I was in Britain. And we knew as a family, if we come back to America, we'd want to go in some place like that. And certainly L.A., is not the South. <laughs> and then uh, secondly, you know, Gateway was a very culturally diverse institution. And I love that uh, experience of diversity when we were overseas in the UK. So I enjoy that about this seminary. And then third, uh, we have an Andrew Fuller Center here, led by my friend and colleague, Chris Chun. It's in association with Yale University. And just having interest in 18th century theological developments, I thought it would be fun to be at a place where we could talk about Jonathan Edwards and the other key figures from 18th century thought for evangelicals. Uh, so that was kind of the impetus to move out west with our family. I have to say a side benefit is that we went from rainy, cold Scotland to sunny, warm L.A. So it's a nice plus. Um, and I say that with great appreciation for Scotland, to be sure. Now, in terms of Gill, I had originally not planned to do any work on Gill, just to be frank. I'd always respected him as a theologian, but my respect was kind of from a distance. I had read articles about his work, and I had dipped into his systematic theology, but I had not just read through extensive portions of Gill's writings. When I went to St. Andrews, my plan was to do a PhD on Andrew Fuller and exclusively on Fuller. And how that came about, just very briefly, was whenever I was serving as a pastor, I was trying to find a way to combine the academic experience I was having at Southeastern Seminary's PhD program with the on-the-ground, nuts-and-bolts life of ministry there in Virginia. And I felt as though sometimes I lived in two distinct worlds. And just for personal devotional reading, I was going through Fuller. And I was struck by how warm-hearted his theology was and how his theology made practical pastoral turns so often. And I thought, wow, okay, here is theology on the ground. It's theology written in a church context for a church context. So I had originally planned to pursue something like that for my PhD. Now, whenever I was reading Fuller there in Britain, I was struck by the fact that we have very rarely contextualized his theological proposals. So if you take Gospel Worthy, for example, which is his most famous work, this is his rebuttal of what's called hyper-Calvinism, as you all will know, what Fuller sometimes called false Calvinism. And I was struck when reading that, that if I were to offer a rebuttal of so-called no-offer Calvinism, I wouldn't address any of the concerns he raises in that piece. <laughs> it's such an occasional piece. It's, it's so located in one particular context. And some of the issues that he raised uh, had a certain amount of ambiguity to me. Exactly who is he addressing here? What's driving the concern? 
And so I thought there's something here that we are missing. We need to pull uh, back Fuller's context deeper. And so that led me to read many of Fuller's predecessors in the Baptist world. And of course, that led me to read Gill. And I soon became enamored by Gill because of his depth as a theologian. And I spent an entire year just reading through Gill's works. My wife became concerned because she said, we're here to study a PhD on Fuller. You're reading Gill all of the time. Um, and, and to be sure, that experience was very profitable for me. And so in my thesis, my PhD thesis, I contextualized Fuller by looking at Gill and several other theologians as well. Well, before we get into the discussions on on Gill and Catholicity and particularly his, his view on the um, – Covenant of Redemption. Um, I, I know we had a, a uh, an episode recently with Dr. Haken on John Gill, and we talked a lot about his life, but maybe some folks uh, didn't hear that episode. So before we get into the specific areas of Gill's thought, why don't you just give us a brief um, biographical sketch of his life? Sure. Uh, Gill was born in 1697, and he's raised in a small town called Kettering. And Gill, from a very young age, is a very studious person. There is a famous anecdote from his youth in which the people in the town of Kettering denoted the certainty of something by saying that it is as sure as John Gill is at the bookseller shop. And so even as a young man, he's collecting these books. He's uh, learning Latin. He's very proficient at Latin and several other languages uh, around the age of 12 and 13. And so he's marked as an intellectually inclined person. He does not go to what we would consider like a public university because he's from a dissenting context, a dissenting family. Uh, but he's very studious and self-taught. Uh, Gill ends up going into the ministry and eventually pastors a church in London that will later be associated with Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. It's not called that during Gill's day, but that's what it will transition into later. And Gill, in his office of pastor at London, just becomes a very proficient author. He composes commentaries on books of the Bible that encompass um, all of the books of the Bible. And he's the first Baptist to ever write a commentary on every book of the Bible. He composes his very lengthy systematic theology, a complete body of doctrinal and practical divinity, and numerous polemical pieces. He debates some of the most famous people of that era. Uh, he engages in a long dispute with John Wesley. He engages with a nonconformist by the name of Abraham Taylor. And so he becomes very well known, not only for being a pastor in this strategic city of London, but for a writer and theologian uh, that Baptists could have um, some respect for and, and pride about. Good stuff. So maybe we start with Catholicity. Talk to me a little bit about what John Gill's thoughts are on Catholicity and how he endeavored to promote it? Because I imagine a good significant chunk of our listeners who aren't familiar with a lot of the particularities of Gill probably have a caricature of Gill that he's not uh, endeavoring to, to promote Catholicity. And maybe that's just a general caricature of Baptists in general. And maybe it's true to some extent that they want to be very separated from others. So talk to me about Gill's own thoughts on this. No, that's right. I think we do have a certain image of Gill. You're absolutely right. And whatever that image is, most of us don't think Catholicity. <laughs> that's not the first word that comes to our mind. Now, there are reasons for that image that we have, and we can talk about those later. But but I think if we survey Gill's corpus, we do see a surprising 
a surprising spirit of Catholicity in his works. And so I'll just kind of talk briefly about the general tone of his writings, and then I'll later talk about some of the constructive moves he makes in terms of Catholicity. So in terms of just the tone of his writings, because Gill is so well-read, his works are in no way, shape, or form just operating in a Baptist cul-de-sac, so to speak. And so he's got a very famous polemical track called The Cause of God and Truth. And at the end of that track, he just lists so many early church writers, everyone from Irenaeus to uh, Tertullian to Origen. And he engages with their writings, and he pulls them out to suit his own polemical purposes, sometimes good, um, sometimes not always as accurate a quotation as you would like. But I've just been impressed by the depth of his engagement with these sources. And this continues on in so many other works. You've got a book uh, that he, or a shorter track he authored called A Dissertation on the Eternal Sonship of Christ, which is a defense of eternal generation. And he starts with Justin Martyr and goes all the way through, noting people who upheld eternal generation and then the problems that emerged when people denied eternal generation. And so the entire work is this uh, enterprise in historical theology and consideration of historical text. Now, to branch out even further, Gill is not only reading early church writers, he's also reading Protestant scholastic theologians from the continent. Because he is so fluent in so many languages, including Italian, he incorporates many uh, writers from the continent into his theological works. And so I've read Gill before and have noticed in one sentence he's quoting an early writer like Clement of Alexandria. And then two sentences down, he's quoting a 16th century Lutheran theologian. And so people from the Netherlands appear, people from Germany appear, people from France appear. And so here you have this theologian who is conversant with so many different parts of the Christian tradition, from early church work to conversations that happen in the continent and various denominations um, and various traditions outside of the Baptist world. That is rare, especially even for Baptist works today. I, I don't know of too many Baptist systematic theologies that operate in that form now. And so we can say, first of all, just the tone exhibits this Catholicity. But going forward, we can also say that Gill did make some constructive moves in terms of his theological method that showed his desire to deliberately uphold a spirit of Catholicity. So at the very beginning of his systematic theology, a complete body of doctrinal divinity, he opens up with this defense of the necessity of systematic theology. And he kind of bemoans the fact that systematic theology in his day is falling out of favor. And so he's trying to reclaim it. And he starts off by saying, well, even in the Bible, we see certain verses that codify Christian teaching in an orderly, organized way. And he cites verses such as Hebrews 6, opening of Hebrews 6. But then he goes straight to the tradition. And he says this enterprise of an orderly offering an orderly account of Christian belief goes back to the earliest days of the Christian um, system, uh, Christian tradition. So he cites Clement of Alexandria, Origen's first principles. Uh, he notes Tertullian's engagement with the rule of faith. And so here he is explicitly making an argument for tradition in his work. And it's when he mentions the rule of faith that appears in Tertullian's writings 
that he then launches off in this very lengthy digression. And he says, well, what is the rule of faith? And he says, well, the rule of faith, the regular fide, helps us ensure a proper interpretation of Scripture. It's not the Scripture. It's a collection of teachings that have been passed down to us through the church's uh, reflection on Scripture. And we interpret the Scripture in light of these teachings that have been handed down to us. It serves as a boundary and check for us. And so right there, you see Gill attacking a simple and naive biblicism and using the tradition in his theological work and in his interpretive work. And he really dives into Tertullian. The text that he pulls from is Tertullian's work called On Unveiling of Virgins and really draws out Tertullian's work on regular fide and makes it his own. And so I know, again, a very few Baptist systematic theology texts that begin this way. Normally, we give the impression that we have the Bible on one side, and we just consider the claims of the Bible, and then out pops our theology. But Gill is saying, no, there are many steps along the way. You read the Bible, but you also deeply reflect on the church's traditions and teachings, respectfully interacting with those teachings. And that's part of constructing your theological moves. So all of that, I think, is important. Yeah, towards the end of your your Baptist Quarterly article, you say, uh, while it is ironic that one of the more interesting examples of Baptist Catholicity resides in the work, in the works of a staunch and often combative particular Baptist minister associated with no offer Calvinism, Baptist history is replete with ironies and surprises. Um, so that kind of leads to my next question, you know, because Gill, as you say there, you know, he definitely wanted to maintain his distinctives. Um, and so I, as Baptists today, um, I know that, and this is, this is kind of gaining steam a bit. Um, you know, Baptists do have a, a reputation of being maybe more biblicists and more sectarian. Um, but with, you know, like Center for Baptist Renewal trying to push back against that, um, and doing good work. And we're trying to do some of the same stuff here, but what do you think um, as Baptists we can do? Like, what are specific areas that we can we can really try to retrieve that Catholicity while also remaining um, committed to our Baptist distinctives? We want to kind of hold both of those maybe in tension, but we we do want to really um, not just give lip service to Catholicity, but actually really go for it. Um, what's your advice to us? That's a great question. Um, one thing I would like to lead with is that this conversation itself is very welcome and it's exciting, but it's also very contextual. And I think it's helpful to, to lead with that because it, it helps us situate this conversation in a very American way. Whenever I first showed my pastor in Britain this article that you're just referencing here on Gill's Catholicity, he was absolutely perplexed <laughs> because so many of the Baptists in Britain, especially the English Baptists, live in a world where Anglicanism is, is at least ascendant culturally. And they're used to having to engage with the tradition. And they're used to even reciting creeds and having a liturgy in their service. And so a lot of these conversations are really relevant for the American context in particular. And I think in part because of landmarkism's influence in America. And I think also in part simply because, at least in the South, we've had cultural and numerical supremacy, and we've not had to kind of come out of the Baptist cul-de-sac, so to speak, and engage with the broader tradition and the world around us. We've been able to only talk to ourselves. 
And so I think uh, it's a very welcome development for us now to humbly consider the resources that exist beyond just the Baptist fold and to see how we can process those in our in our Baptist context. So if that helps, that's how I like to lead it. But in terms of constructive moves forward, there are numerous sources out there. And so uh, Curtis Freeman is the head of the Baptist House at Duke University. And several years ago, as you will know, he wrote a book called Contesting Catholicity. And he helpfully said that you can have both contesting, a spirit of contesting, that is contesting for your ecclesial convictions, and a spirit of Catholicity at the same time. The two are not in opposition to one another. And his argument is that Baptists are part of the larger church Catholic, but they exist as a contesting part. That is, we're part of the the larger church Catholic, but we're contesting for a certain ecclesiology in this larger church. And this is our contribution that we make to the larger Christian tradition. We have this set of ecclesial commitments that we believe are genuinely helpful and generative, and we're using these to engender conversations about ecclesiology in the Christian world at large. Hopefully, (laughs) that's the goal. Um, So I think that's a helpful marker. Now, as you said, in the Southern Baptist Convention, we have the Center for Baptist Renewal led by Matt Emerson, who's also a Southeastern grad and was there when I was at Southeastern. He's a great guy, Luke Stamps, et cetera. They do great work, particularly Southern Baptist key. For me, I, I know that you wanted to discuss this. And so if this is in any way helpful, I just wrote down four quick thoughts in terms of constructive moves, building on what Freeman has said and what the Center for Baptist Renewal has said. And I would just simply say this. Number one, we need to lead uh, the conversation in America, at least, by showing how the earlier Baptists did exhibit a willingness to engage with the tradition. I think if we do that, we can kind of disentangle ourselves from the subtle landmarkism that can still at least culturally influence our movement. And so showing people that uh, some of the early general Baptists had confessional statements that cited the Apostles' Creed and the Athanasian Creed, Um, that the famous church, New Road Baptist in Oxford, has in its confessional statement that they are a Protestant Catholic Church of Christ. And so there are, or John Gill, John Gill's Catholicity. So there are instances in our past where where we've not been set off and not had conversations with others. And so just presenting that fact forward in the American scene will be helpful. I think. Number two, I think we need to work harder to develop a constructive account of tradition and what role tradition plays in our theologizing. Normally, we run this through either the doctrine of the communion of saints or the doctrine of the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. And a lot of the work in this area is being done by Protestant Reformed people. And it would be fun if we as Baptists took up the mantle and did more work especially making use of some of our ecclesial commitments. I'm thinking here about Scott Swain and Michael Allen, but what insights could Baptist ecclesiology in particular contribute to those conversations they're having? And then number three, I I think we need to engage with the tradition better in our popular theology text. Whenever I was coming up as a student in systematic theology, I was not taught eternal generation. That's not insignificant. (laughs) That's the core of so much of what powers uh, not only Trinitarian theology, but classical doctrine of God. And so I think what strikes me about Gill is his willingness to to engage with the tradition head on in his theology. 
Now we're getting better. Greg Allison's new book on the spirit talks about eternal generation and eternal spiration. We're moving so much in the right direction, but more work can be done. And so I would love to see the tradition filter into more popular level Baptist theology books. And then last but not least, and this might open a can of worms, it would be really helpful if we use the tradition, not just polemically, but constructively for our ecclesiology. And here's what I mean. Most of the time in a Baptist text, we'll only cite the tradition if we're trying to uphold, say, the validity of what we think of as believer's baptism. So I'm thinking of a very popular Baptist text now, and I'm in no way trying to be negative, that tries to defend believer's baptism by citing Tertullian. But as we all know, what Tertullian was doing with baptism is in no way, shape, or form what we think is happening in baptism at the average Sunday morning service at a Baptist church. And it's not always accurate to pull Tertullian fully into our fold, right? And so instead of just pulling snippets from the tradition for polemical purposes, it would be good to fully resource it in a constructive way for our ecclesiology, understanding how we view the sacraments, understanding how we view uh, conversations around church practice. So I, I know that's kind of a long answer, but just trying to throw things out there for us all to discuss together. I do want to transition a little bit, and we can circle back to Catholicity if we have time. The thing I want to focus on now is the covenant of redemption. So Gil spends some time working on this, and I think even in our own contemporary context, it is something that is relevant and people are interested in it. And there's, it seems that there's been some questioning of its validity as a category. So maybe we just, what is the covenant of redemption? What's Gill think about the covenant of redemption? And then after that, we can talk a bit about what that means for the Trinity and such. Okay, sure. Absolutely. Um, So in covenant theology, classically speaking, you you have three uh, distinct forms of covenants, at least in classical covenant theology. So there's a covenant of works. This is made with Adam in the garden. And it's uh, do this and you shall live, right? And then there's a covenant of grace. And this is made uh, with the elect. And uh, if they have faith and and trust in Christ, they will receive the benefits of Christ's person and and work. The covenant of redemption, so to speak, is nestled between these two covenants, at least conceptually speaking. Some people have called it sort of like in the cradle of these two covenants, And the covenant of redemption describes a pre-temporal compact made between the Father and the Son, in which the Son will enact the redemptive plan in the divine economy. The Son will come to earth and die on the cross, and the Father will send the Son. And so this is Father and Son agreeing together on the outworking of salvation's plan. And so the reason that it's important in covenant theology is it's a, a way to conceive of Um, the entire economy of redemption through the lens of covenantal arrangements. And so it's uh, trying to use this covenantal framework to interpret all of God's redemptive activity. And so that's, in short, where the covenant of redemption stands and and what it is. Now, you you make the argument that that Gill's version of the covenant of redemption is kind of out of step with the the rest of um, the Reformed tradition um, and traditionally understood reformed uh, soteriology. So unpack for us what what is distinctive about um, about his view and 
Um, well, I guess I have a follow up on that, but I'll, I'll let you do that first. And then, and then I'll ask you. Absolutely. Well, thanks for letting me talk about this because uh, this is not a topic that comes up often right around the dinner table. Not many people are just itching to hear about Gil's understanding of the pactum salutis. And so uh, I'm happy to hang out with you guys today. So thanks for that. I think to get Gil right, we do have to get his context right. And so if you'll let me just talk for a second about what happens before Gil comes on the scene, I think it will make sense of what Gil does and as you said, why he is so unique. So before Gill arrives on the scene, there's this backlash against Puritanism in some parts of um, English religion, not, especially in nonconformist religion in England. And some people describe this backlash as the doctrinal antinomian movement. Other people call this the contra-Puritans. But the idea was that they were upset over what they perceived as a lack of assurance of salvation the covenant of grace and collapse them into one another so that now the elect are not entering into a covenant where they have to exercise faith to enjoy salvation's benefits. No, Christ is in this covenant where, where he is agreeing to perform all of the actions on behalf of the elect. So he's standing in their place. Uh, John Saltmarsh has this favorite line of his where it says Christ has believed perfectly, re, uh, repented of sin perfectly, uh, everything you know that you would think of as what we are to do under grace, uh, Saltmarsh and Chris put in Christ person. And um, this structure of collapsing the covenant of grace into the covenant of redemption is not entirely unique just to Chris. You have people like uh, John Bunyan, early Jonathan Edwards, A.A. A. Hodge, for example, who do this. But what makes Crisp unique is that he collapses the covenant of redemption into the covenant of grace for the sole purpose of removing any sense of conditionality in salvation. And so now you fulfill no condition to receive Christ. You don't have to believe. You don't have to repent. Crisp says you're justified at the moment you're born. Christ has done everything for you. And so all you have to do is just understand that you're already in Christ. You're already united to him. And the goal for Crisp is to say, ah, this means I don't have to worry about finding assurance. Christ has done everything. I don't have to worry. Have I had enough faith? Have I had repented enough? Have I believed enough? No, I just existentially have this awareness that I'm already united with Christ and justified. That's very eccentric. Right. <laughs> and obviously it can be very problematic and does become problematic. And there's a famous pastor for his day in Cambridge named Joseph Hussey, who is wrestling with the lack of assurance of salvation in his life. And he turns to Tobias Crisp and he takes Crisp one step further. It's sort of like Crisp is uh, increasing the temperature of the water subtly moving us away from more traditional forms of Puritan thought. And now Hussey is slowly increasing that temperature even more. And then when Gil comes on the scene, as we'll see in a second, he increases it all the way up to a boiling stage. But for Hussey, um, it's not enough to say that you're justified at your birth. You're justified eternally. Because Christ is doing this in the covenant agreements with the Father. It's at that moment in the covenant of redemption itself, that you are united with Christ and justified. 
And that just means for Hussey that there can be no such thing as an offer of salvation or a call for people to respond to the gospel. Because if you do that, you'll imply that they have to perform a work, that they have to meet a condition, they have to respond, they have to do something. So for Hussey, you preach only the indicatives of the gospel. Jesus died and rose again. You never call for change or for conversion or anything like that. And you trust that the elect will receive a message from the Spirit telling them that they have already pretemporally been united with Christ and justified with Him, and they can have assurance. And so Hussey is the originator of what becomes hyper-Calvinism or no-offer Calvinism. And so that's the background. And I know that seems like we're getting away from conversations about Gill, but it's important to lay that down because Gill lived in this world. And so Gill loved the doctrinal antinomians. I mean, he he loved them. Abraham Taylor was a famous nonconformist minister. And one time in the sermon, he just made a passing reference to the doctrinal antinomians, people like Salt Marsh and Eaton. And Crisp, uh, excuse me, and Crisp, and Gill got wind of this and went ballistic and authored so many pamphlets against Taylor because he just could not stand Eaton and Saltmarsh and Crisp to be discredited. Gill famously republished Tobias Crisp covenant theology in his own day to great controversy. Let's think about this for a minute. Tobias Crisp writings were condemned at the Westminster Confession of Faith. Some of the divines at the Westminster Confession of Faith said that Tobias Crisp covenant theology was so bad his work should be burned. Gill is coming not long after Crisp's own day and is republishing these writings. Uh, Gill is mentored by Richard Davis in Kettering, where he's a young boy, and Davis is infatuated with Tobias Crisp. So Gill receives this from his youth, and he sticks to it for his entire life. He also receives Hussey's theology. John Skepp is the man who was there at Gill's ordination service, and John Gill loves John Skepp. John Skepp started out in Joseph Hussey's church in Cambridge. Whenever we lived in the UK, I took a train down to Cambridge and found Hussey's old church book in a library. And there near the back, I saw John Skepp's name mentioned, and it said that Skepp left the church to go join the Anabaptist, which means the Baptist. And Skep is the one who ordains Gill. Gill appreciates Skep's theology. Uh, Gill himself quotes Joseph Hussey often with approval. He says Joseph Hussey is a great theologian and a pious man. And I could give even other instances, but you get the drift. Gill is, is receiving this tradition honestly and fairly from his historical context. He loves it. And his covenant theology is simply Joseph Hussey's theology. Um, defined in clearer, more sophisticated ways. Make sure I'm tracking with you. So we have this doctrine of eternal justification that Gill is going to receive. And then I think, maybe tell me if I'm jumping too far ahead, but his one of his unique contributions is his role of the Spirit in the covenant of redemption. So he has... um, he, he makes a distinction between eternal justification and passive, I think is right, passive justification. And then that's where the spirit's role comes in. So 
walk us through that. What what is he doing with the role of the spirit, and then anything else that's that's unique for Gil um, with the covenant? Of Absolutely, no, that's right. So Gil's unique because he follows Hussey in saying the covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption are collapsed together. Christ performs all works on our behalf. But secondly, he's unique because Gil takes the at this time radical step of making the Holy Spirit a full participant in the covenant of redemption. So, you know, if you notice how I led with this, I said the covenant of redemption is a compact between father and son. That's classically how it's been formulated. Very few theologians have said it was a compact between father, son, and spirit. Exceptions would be David Dickinson or uh, Thomas Goodwin and John Gill. And so Gill does make the spirit a full participant in the covenant. And he does that because he says the Spirit's role in the covenant of redemption is to reveal to the elect. But if we reject Gil's soteriology and just focus on this aspect of his covenant theology, there is something very generative here. Because as you rightly said, the covenant of redemption comes under tremendous criticism in the 20th century. Robert Lethem, for example, attacks it because it's not sufficiently, in his mind, Trinitarian. Karl Barth hates the idea, famously. Um, other people are trying to restore the credibility of the covenant of redemption. I'm thinking of someone like Fesco. But Gill here is going to give you all three members of the Trinity involved in this compact. And so I think it is sufficiently Trinitarian. And so Gill and people like David Dickinson and um, Thomas Goodwin do have a fully orb Trinitarian covenant of redemption theology. So... I guess one of my questions just relates to Lethem and some of these other guys' critiques of the covenant of redemption. It seems to me that a lot of the critiques leveled, at least contemporary-wise, are Trinitarian in nature, where it's creating some sort of subordination relationship or something like that. Uh, does Gill give us the resources to handle that objection? Or is that something that we would have to do outside of what Gil's doing? No, that's a fantastic question. And I definitely wanted to bring this up because even though, as you can tell from what I'm saying, I pin Gil in the hyper-Calvinist camp, I think Gil is still worth reading. And one of the reasons he's worth reading, even on this issue of covenant theology, is the point you just raised. Now, you're right. A lot of people ask these sorts of questions. What does the covenant of redemption do to doctrines like divine simplicity? Does the covenant of redemption take us into a world of social Trinitarianism, where it's like we have three wills in the, in the divine life? And Gill helps us here, because Gill very clearly, in his systematic theology, has his Trinitarian theology outlined at the beginning. He talks about eternal generation and eternal spiration, uh, subsisting persons, relations of subsistence. But then... He says there's a new category called God's internal acts or God's internal works. As soon as he make that, makes that move, he is now saying that the covenant of redemption is part of the divine economy, not part of God's inner life. That's the key. And so Gill can uphold that there's one divine will. Gill can uphold classical understanding of divine simplicity because this covenantal arrangement is the first step all right, so Gill's view. Uh, this is maybe just a more question, a question about about your own beliefs. So w we don't want to retain his no all for Calvinism 
and some people probably don't even want to retain his Calvinism, but <laughs> if you do, um, you know, what, what is it? And this sort of gets at Jordan's question, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm aiming at something a little bit different here. Um, can we take his innovative part um, and, and make it something useful in our own theological work? And, and then leave behind what, what was his motivation for even making that innovation in the first place, or do we have to take both? I think. Is there something there that can be I retrieved? I think absolutely there is. I think we can retrieve from Gail the fact that uh, the covenant of redemption can be Trinitarian, uh, fully Trinitarian. And we can also take from the fact uh, that the covenant of redemption relates to the economy, not God's life, uh, inner life. And so it doesn't have to bring us into this fraught conversation about divine simplicity, et cetera. Yeah. So I, I feel like Gil has a, maybe a complicated legacy. Um, on the one hand, I feel like depending on who you talk to, like he's, he's revered. He's, he's thought of as a, you know, a, a great mind. Obviously he wrote the full commentary, the first Baptist systematic theology and all this, but I, I still feel like he's kind of like, back in the shadows a little bit like how was he viewed in his own day was he was he very well respected um by other baptists and 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 other denominations and um you know what are some things outside of this conversation from you know the the covenant of redemption but just broadly speaking that we need to look back at gill and say man that's something we can learn from him yeah that's great uh he was respected in his day you know his name appears in jonathan edwards writings um, his name appears in, in numerous theologians' writings. Whenever I was studying Gill, I was pulling theology texts from the continent and America, and I was shocked how many people referenced him at some point. And so he's well known in the theological landscape. That's very rare for a Baptist in this day. <laughs> it's probably rare for Baptists even today, honestly, many times. And so, um, so I think you know he's respected. He's known. His theology was never taken uncritically, though. So there were always people who were raising concerns about his views on eternal justification and eternal union with Christ. Abraham Taylor was one, and later Andrew Fuller is obviously another. Those are probably the two most famous examples from around his era. Do you have any, since you spent quite a bit of time reading Gill, do you have any favorite um, works by Gill or about Gill that you could recommend for us? Yeah, and tell us where to get those because it does seem Gill's stuff is hard to find, and maybe and that's just true. I think of a lot of older Baptist works, people who aren't you know Baptist historians, they just don't know where to go to get a good copy of some of the stuff. Absolutely. Uh, so I feel tremendously blessed because the year that I started to read Gill, Logos decided to digitize his major works. And I said, thank God. And so they were searchable. They were indexed. And that saved me so much heartache. I still ended up with a bald head from my PhD, but it wasn't because I was trying to figure out where to find Gil. Uh, and so Logos actually would be a great place to start if you have access to that. They have all of his uh, major tracks and his systematic theology. And then, of course, there are some more occasional pieces that are located in various libraries. Michael Haken is someone who knows about that very well, and so he's great to connect with about that. Uh, in terms of a starting place for Gil, I would disagree with some of the moves he makes on his Song of uh, Solomon commentary, but it's a fascinating piece. It's fun to read. Uh, I know that when Dr. Haken was on the show, he noted that. Uh, Dr. Haken is a friend of mine. I agree with him. 
it's an engaging read. I think his systematic theology, though, is where to go next. And just take it head on, read it all the way through if you can. You know, reject the bad and take on the good. He's a profound intellect. And as I said, you'll find everyone from Lutherans and uh, Reformed to early church writers there. And it's a very rich read. So, David, for those who want to follow you, follow your work, to keep up with the stuff that you're doing, do you have like a website or other places they can go to just follow what's going on? Um, I do have a website. It's poorly maintained at the moment because uh, COVID ended our lives as it did everyone else's. But it's just uh, drathel.com. Uh, and you can check that out. The easiest way to get up with me, though, is there on the Gateway Seminary website. I'm happy if you want to reach out and talk, you can email me. Um, I have a few books I'm working on now and different projects. And so hopefully those will come to fruition, God willing. And I just realized, I think I mispronounced your last name early on. It's a total rookie move. But I feel like I do this to almost everybody. I miss <laughs> we interviewed Ad- yeah. Adonis Vidu previously, and he was explaining how, I guess, his British supervisor <laughs> called him Adonis. And I totally, yeah, <laughs> I got confused, and I think I accidentally called him Adonis at some point, which seems like a very much a power move. But for those listening, you just know that I struggle with the pronunciation thing. It is, no uh, worry. But so, so now everybody knows how to pronounce Dr. Rathel's name is the not Rathel. Is out. There aren't many Rathels in this world, so the mystery is out. Yeah. So, well, this has been a lot of fun. I think this has been really, really interesting. Definitely. And yeah, yeah I really enjoyed it. So thank you, number one, for coming on. Uh, number two, I encourage all of our listeners to check out his stuff. Uh, do you have any books that you're working on right now presently? Sure. So I've got a book under contract with Regents Park at the University of Oxford, and we'll discuss John Johnson, who's kind of a forgotten 18th century Baptist figure. And then I'm, uh, my PhD thesis that talks about Gill and Fuller is now under review. So pray for that. Uh, so those are the two big works that I'm working on. Awesome. Ooh. So a, as you know, as these things come out, we will let you yeah, guys and know. A, and Unknown Baptist, we have to have him back on to talk about that <laughs> one. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, so closer to the release of that date, we'll, we'll have to set something up for that. So thanks a ton for doing this. Everybody's been listening. Uh, we, we thank you for tuning in to the only analytic uh, Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.